and feel uh, like you can exult in the dawn of Christ's coming and all the peace that he comes to offer, you've got to grapple with the darkness. And we touched on this last week. We, we touch on this often. But this will be, um, we're going to get really down there. <laughs> and I hope that you can hang. I hope that our hearts don't resist where Scripture takes us. Let it, let it take you there so that it can take you where it wants to eventually take you. Turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Coming down to the end of this gospel, Jesus has been betrayed by one of his own, handed over to the people that are his own, and then the people that are his own that are also disowning him, hand him over to the Roman authorities. And here we see what Christ has to suffer. If you need a Bible, they're passing them out, so just slip your hand up. We want to make sure you're there. We'll start right at the top at chapter 15, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. So just a couple of quick notes. You might think, I thought we did the trial already. Well, this is another trial. Uh, now the, the Jewish authorities are bringing Jesus before the Roman authorities who, who at the end of the day are in charge of executions and these things. Pilate is a prefect. He's a governor. He's a governor of Judea. Uh, so he works for Rome and he's there to make sure that this, this section of this conquered people uh, are kept in check. Uh, they, like to, they like to uprise. They have their fair share of insurrections squash it, keep it down, but try to keep the insurrections from happening because we don't want to keep losing Roman soldiers. So, so Pilate is there to try to keep the peace. But he doesn't, he's not there to be a nice guy. If there's uprisings, squash it and squash it hard. Squash it Roman style. Be brutal if you have to. But try not to have that happen too much. Okay? So there's the tension that I think helps us understand what's going on in Pilate's mind as he, he, he doesn't want to crucify an innocent Jew, that could lead to a crowd uprising, but he doesn't want to disappoint the crowd, and so the crowd becomes a, big, a major player in Jesus' trial. But once again, Jesus is not offering anything, he's not denying nor confirming the accusations, and Pilate is amazed at his sheer silence. Verse 6. Jesus gets exchanged. Now at the feast, he used to release for them. Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. So there wasn't a recent insurrection, the Jews uprising, trying to overthrow Rome. Rome squashed it, and Barabbas is one of the prisoners from that insurrection. And Barabbas killed people and is labeled a murderer. 
And at this feast, Pilate would allow the Jews to request one prisoner to release, one Jewish prisoner to release, and then he would release them. I don't know why this became a tradition, but it, it was. And so Barabbas is called over. And the crowd, verse 8, the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. So Pilate knows, okay, he's innocent. These people are just envious of him. And that's the only reason why he's here. Pilate knows it. He's not stupid. Verse 11, But the chief priests stirred up the crowd. There it is. got to get the crowd on your side to get anything to happen in this scenario. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. We're not sure what they said, but they're probably singing Barabbas' praises. He didn't really do anything. It would be nice to have Barabbas back. Remember what Barabbas, how he used to be? Who knows? But mostly it's probably, uh, you know, Barabbas didn't go in the temple and say, I'm going to knock this temple down. Barabbas didn't say, uh, forget Caesar, don't pay taxes. You know, all those accusations they have against Jesus, they're trying to get the crowd to see that Jesus is the one that actually has to not be released and be executed, release Barabbas instead. Verse 12, and Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Pay no attention to the facts, right? Just kill him. And it's not death by injection or death by decapitation, but it's death by uh, a horrendous uh, form of a torturous execution that was particularly developed to keep people in check. You want this to happen to you? Obey Caesar. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, not wishing to satisfy justice, has nothing to do with justice. The shouting crowd out there, he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So what we see here is we see this exchange, and I think the reason why Mark gives us a whole paragraph about it is for us to understand that there's an exchange happening here in, in more ways than one. Uh, Barabbas, a Jewish name, means son of Abba, son of, of the father. And they give up son of the father to crucify the son of God. One who's actually guilty is released into freedom so that one who's actually innocent takes the punishment that the guilty party should have had. This is First Peter. Uh, Jesus Christ died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now there are a whole strain of Christians that do not believe in the substitutionary aspect of what Christ is doing here. That Christ has substitutes the sinner. I don't know what Bibles they're reading, but it's clear from all over, and that's what Mark is doing here. He's showing what is happening, why this is happening. It's Jesus dying as the righteous for the unrighteous. And so Jesus is handed over, and he's going to be treated guilty even though he's not guilty. Verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. Is that, is that humorous? 
A battalion of 600 Roman soldiers. One guy that's already been beard plucked, blindfolded and punched in the face over and over. He's been flogged. So for those of you who maybe need your memory refreshed, this is a whip of cords, a multi-ended whip with shards of pottery and steel and glass embedded so that the whip would embed itself into the, uh, the prisoner's back. And then when they yank the whip back, skin comes with it. Uh, but even though he's beaten, bloody, they, they make sure that an entire battalion is with him as if the reason why Jesus is submitted to them is because of clubs and swords. You remember when Jesus cracked that kind of joke when they came to arrest him. Uh, clubs and swords, huh? I'm going with you not because you are armed. I'm going with you because I'm fulfilling Scripture. And in Jesus' silence, we have the, we have the advantage, the, the vantage point to see The reason why he's being beaten and being mocked is not because he's uh, unable to get himself out of it. He's completely submitting himself to it. And he can destroy them with a word. But they send the whole battalion, verse 17, they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, a stick, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. Not real homage, of course. It's a mockery. Verse 20, And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his clothes back on, uh, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. So you have these soldiers that are going above and beyond what they need to do. All they need to do is lead him to go crucify him. Uh, but they're taking liberty. They know this is supposed to be brutal. They want to make a point of this. They want Jews to be scared. And so they torture him physically, but there's also this mockery with the cloak, the purple royal colored cloak, the crown, but it's made of thorns. Uh, they salute him. They spit on him. They kneel before him. Oh, king. Oh, they're like junior hires with weapons. And they make a mockery of him. And then you get verse 21 to 31. And this interesting, uh, scholars debate whether Jesus was beaten, flogged twice or once. I don't want to get into too many details here, but when you read John, it looks like he was flogged before he was taken to be crucified. And when you read Mark and Matthew and Luke, he's uh, he's taken to go be crucified, flogged first, and then crucified. So which, which one is it? John has it over here, and Matthew and Mark have it over there, and many scholars say both. Uh, uh, Pilate had him beat to try to get him released, and it didn't work. And uh, the MO for crucifying someone, to prepare someone for crucifixion, you would flog them uh, so that they wouldn't be on the cross. You know, we don't have time for them to hang on the cross for a whole week. So beat them to the point where they're almost dead, then hang them on the cross so they can die quicker there. We have to move on with things. So it's very possible he was beaten twice. One, to try to get the Jews to just say, okay, that's enough, he's punished, release him. And then the second, to bring him, uh, prepare him for 
crucifixion. Mark doesn't have the first one if there was a first one. But now we have, uh, one reason why I bring that up is because normally the person being crucified would carry the cross beam themselves. And Jesus is unable to do it. Now it's either option A, Jesus is just way weaker than most guys that were prisoners. You know, he should have worked out more or something. Or two, normally prisoners aren't beaten twice and he can't do it. So I go with the two beatings theory. Verse 21, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Why name these guys? Because Mark is writing to a Roman audience, and uh, he's writing to actual people who go to actual church, and it's like if someone writing you and, and, and says, you know, the, the, uh, the son of uh, the father of Alexander Rufus, they sit in the back over here. Oh yeah, I know them. So he, he's real people that he's writing to. In verse 22, they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. That's basically an ancient narcotic to try to deaden the pain. And he doesn't want to feel, uh, he wants to feel the full brunt of the pain. And so he passes on the, uh, the drink that's offered to alleviate pain. Verse 24, and they crucified him. And divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour. So that's 9 a.m. On, on their time. When they crucified him. And the inscript, in the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. So there's, they have to put the, why the person's guilty on the inscription. And they, they just put king of the Jews. Verse 27. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Isn't that interesting? When's the last time we heard about someone being on Jesus' left and someone being on Jesus' right? Wasn't it James and John asking for that position? Wasn't it James and John going, hey, we want to follow you. Make one of us on your left and one of us on your right. And what's Jesus' response? Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Here's Jesus drinking it, and those guys aren't on his left and on their right. They're nowhere to be found. Who's on his left and right? Thieves. So this fulfills Isaiah fifty three twelve that Jesus was uh, the Messiah was to be numbered with the transgressors. He's associated with the guilty. He's thrown in with the guilty. You have a thief, Jesus, a thief. You know people that should be crucified and they're under their law, and then one who should not have been, but he's thrown in with them. He bears guilt even though he's not guilty. He takes on guilty. He's associated with the guilty. So there's the exchange again. The one who shouldn't be there but is there for the sake of others. And what's interesting is I'm bringing out details to you about the whipping and, and we can go into crucifixion and what that was like and how they would suffocate and all these kind of details about the, the, the person's posture on the cross and all these things. But Mark doesn't. He, he really doesn't spend a whole lot of time on blood and gore and the physical pain. And it's just kind of anticlimactic in verse uh, 25. Um, you know, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. They just, he, he was crucified. A lot of, uh, he's sparse on the details in terms of the physical pain, but he gives us lots of details in terms of mockery. We had a whole paragraph, 16 to 20, 
on the cloak and the thorn and all hail king of the Jews and how they would kneel and how they struck him with a reed and uh, all these things prior to that, uh, uh, covering his face, punching him. Oh, prophesy if you're able to prophesy. It's mockery. It's not just physical torture, but it's the mockery that Mark is drawing our attention to. And then he does it again, starting in verse 29. Look at how thick... uh, Mark lays it on in terms of the mockery theme. And those who passed by derided him. Okay, uh, Just uttered words of contempt. The, the word there in the Greek is they blasphemed him. Which is ironic because the reason why the Sanhedrin arrested him was because they called him a blasphemer. No, you're blaspheming. So he takes the punishment of those that actually blaspheme and they accuse him are they blaspheme him? But it's words. It's verbal. It's mockery. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. What is wagging their heads? That's idiots. That's a shame. Like when you see somebody and you just think it's such a shame, it's, right? it's the original SMH. What are they saying? Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. You can, you can hear the tone. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another. These are, these are, they're wearing their regalia and their, their academic robes uh, and just acting like children. The chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Ha, ha, ha. You hear the laughter, the mockery, their scoffing, their scorn in their tone. Verse 32, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. You want us to believe you? Do it now. Can't, can you? Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. He's getting it from the Roman guards He's getting it from the Jewish authorities and the guys to his left and right. They're weighing in. Why not? Hey, get us down from here then if you're able to do it. You healed other people. Save us. So there's mocking. There's reviling. There's a wagging of their heads. There's blasphemy. The NIV says hurled insults when they translate blasphemed. Why is Mark paying so much more attention to the mockery than the physical torture? I mean, those of you who grow up in church, you remember Good Friday will roll around and pastor would get up and do a PowerPoint presentation on the pain with Images of the wrist and where the nail would have gone in. You've seen these things, right? Um, what the whip of cords looked like, how much pain he could have experienced, what actually was his cause of death, what does it mean his heart waxed over, how does he suffocate, how does he move up and down the cross, trying to <gasps> gain breath, but he can't hold up there because his feet are nailed and he has to come back down and he's suffocating again and gnawed up and down with his flagellated back going up and down the rugged cross. 30 minutes, 40 minutes of that which is important. But Mark's not doing that. 
What, what is Mark emphasizing? He has, he has an economy of words. He, he uses words sparingly, but he's giving us so much about the mockery and the reviling and the making fun of, the crown of thorns, all of that. Because we were brought up to believe uh, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. That's a lie. That's a lie. Your skin will heal. But you, you, you can have a lifetime of counseling from being called something or being mocked as a child. Jesus endures mockery. Jesus endures shame. The wagging of their heads. What a fool. So he's displayed as the biggest fool in the world for everyone to laugh at and mock. That's no light thing. So then I thought, what does that mean for us? That Jesus took mockery and Jesus took shame. Now, the preacher that I am, my first thought is, well, we endure mockery and we endure shame and God feels bad about that. He doesn't want you to be bullied when you're at school and you, you have the locker next to the jerk and that jerk leaves these notes in your locker and you open your locker, the note falls out and it makes fun of you or something. The teacher that asks you a question, oops, you got the question wrong, the teacher mocks you in front of the class, you're never going to raise your hand again. God feels bad about those things. And Jesus took mockery so that you can see that he feels your pain. And I thought, I don't, I don't think that's quite it. Now here's the difficulty of the message. The reason why Jesus took the mockery is the same reason why he had to take the physical pain. And the reason why he took the physical pain is not so that he understands what you're going through when you break your ankle. The reason why he took the physical pain is because that's what we deserve. The righteous for the unrighteous. Barabbas deserved it. He gets off. Jesus takes what Barabbas should have gotten. Isn't that the theme? Well, we understand that with the physical pain. We protect in our doctrinal statement the statement about eternality and hell. That it's a conscious eternal torment. It's not that you don't feel pain in eternal torment, but that there's actual pain there. So how does somebody get off? Jesus took the pain. But this person was so mean. How could it be that they just gave their lives to Christ and God just pretends it didn't exist? God never pretends that sin doesn't exist. If somebody's hurt you, abused you, physically done something to you, how do they get off? Can a murderer be saved? Well, what does God do? Pretend like the murder never happened? What does that person deserve for murdering that person? Does he deserve to get punched in the face? How about have all the skin on his back whipped off? Does he deserve that? Pluck his beard, beat him, hang him on a cross, suffocate him. Jesus takes it so that the worst of us can be Barabbas. But now that happens physically, what about the mockery? We deserve that too. I want to share with you some verses that uh, I'm sure you've read, if you've read through the Bible before, and maybe you just skip past it because it hurts it hurts the mind and the heart to think about these things. It's going to challenge your understanding of who God is. But I'm hoping that uh, 
by the Holy Spirit's grace, uh, you'll see what it's intended here for. I put some verses on the screen. We're going to look at five. The first one's Psalm chapter 2. Now, Psalm chapter 2 is talking about the people of the world that are wicked. They rise up against God. They don't want to follow God. They rebel against God. They don't like God. They choose not to be with, in covenant with God. And they hate him, ultimately. Now, here's what it says. We'll read one through six. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. That sounds like Mark 15, right? Hey, let's get together and figure out how we can kill God and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, by recognizing the very existence of God, that means I have a responsibility toward God. If there's a God, I have some kind of responsibility toward him. So what do we do in culture and society? We get rid of God so we can do what we want. That's, that's just Psalm 2-3. This is ancient heart of man. What does God do to that? Now you would expect, if we were writing the psalm, we would say, but God's heart breaks for them, and he comes alongside them and whispers sweet nothings in their ears, and says, come on, don't hate me. Very much opposite of that. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. There's the same word. They derided Jesus. It's contemptuous ridicule and mockery. God is mocking them for thinking that they can overthrow him. <laughs> you guys are dumb. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I'm setting my king on my hill, and you can't kill him. Well, they think they can kill him. That's what they're doing in Mark 15, as they laugh at him and spit on him and mock him. But what is God doing from heaven? <laughs> you, think, you think this is it? with your clubs and spears and your 600 battalion. You cannot overthrow me, and you cannot overthrow my king. I'm putting my king on top of the world. He's going to reign, and if you're on the wrong side, you're dead. Does God laugh? Does God mock? Psalm 2 says, yeah. Now, does that mean we join God in it? Let's have a prayer meeting. <laughs> Stupid people that don't believe in Jesus. Why are we not allowed to do that? Because that should have been you, and you have no right to do it. That's why. Well, why does God have the right to do it? Because he's holy and perfect. That's why. Psalm 37. Two verses here. Psalm 37, 12 and 13. Now, keep in mind, the Psalms were the ancient hymns of God's people. They would sing these lyrics up in church. <laughs> Verse 12, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. I, I told you, these aren't the verses that you embroider on your pillow. They're in the Bible. <laughs> The Lord laughs at the wicked. The irony is the wicked laugh at God. They mock Christians and they mock Jesus and they mock everything that's uh, 
Christian and biblical, but who gets the last laugh is what the psalmist is saying. God does because they're literally a joke. Psalm 59 verse 8. This is the context here. Is those that are against the Lord's anointed, similar to Psalm 2. Here's the hope that the psalmist is clinging to. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision, ridicule and mockery. Two more. Just don't want us to leave here going, well, I guess one obscure verse in the Bible, there's more than even I'm showing you. Proverbs 1, 22 to 27. This is scathing, listen. How long, O simple one, simple meaning fool, not simple meaning, I live a simple lifestyle, I'm in the woods and I make my own food and my pan. Idiot is the meaning. How long, O foolish ones, simple ones, will you love being foolish? How long will scoffers, people that make fun, right? Mockers, how long will they delight in their scoffing? And how long will fools hate knowledge? Now, listen to the promise. I thought God is gracious. He is. Listen, if you turn at my reproof, in other words, when I rebuke you, I'm telling you you're wrong. If you turn, we can make this work. I can bring you into a covenant. We can do this. But if you don't, it's not going to go well for you. Verse 23, if you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Isn't that interesting? If somebody resists God, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. I don't fully understand it. You don't need to understand it. You don't need to understand it. Do you just get the picture that there's a God and he has expectations and you're not meeting those expectations and you're in the wrong and he's right to rebuke you? Yes, I understand that. Good. Come to him and he will pour his spirit to you and make you understand. You don't climb a mountain of knowledge and understanding and then get God. That's not how it works. But listen to verse 24. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, I've stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. I'm going to laugh at you. We need to be careful not to create God in our own image and let the Bible show us what God is like for who he is and not who we want him to be. And part of that picture is a God who does not suffer fools. Last one. Going down this deep, deep, dark tunnel of understanding a God who mocks. Proverbs 3, 34. Simple. Two lines. Toward the scorners, he is scornful. But to the humble, he gives favor. Or he gives grace in the Hebrew. Toward the scorners, he is scornful. Some translations, to the scoffers, he scoffs. But to the humble, he gives grace. Why did we just go down that trail? The reason why we went down that trail, brothers and sisters, is because you see Mark 
And all through Mark, right? You've seen it. I've put stuff up on the screen. Mark expects you to have Old Testament knowledge. Oh, yeah, the suffering servant, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 53. Oh, yeah, Psalm 22. That's what's happening here. He expects you, and we're, we're, we'll see that in our growth group questions as well. He expects you to have Old Testament knowledge. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, I just quickly ran through five sections of it where God mocks and God laughs and God scoffs at the wicked who don't want to be reproved, don't want correction, don't want God in their lives. They're utterly foolish. And God doesn't just buckle his knees and go, ah, mm, sorry. Mockery. Now you get to Mark chapter 15, and Jesus isn't just enduring physical pain, but it's the mockery and the reviling. Why? So that those of us who mock God and revile God, don't like God, don't want to be reproved by him, and are facing an eternity of getting mocked by God, can get out from under it. How? The righteous from the unrighteous. Jesus takes the eternal mockery that should be ours, and he takes it upon himself. But why? He's innocent. He doesn't deserve to be mocked. The righteous for the unrighteous. We deserve to be mocked. There's a countercultural message for you. We don't deserve to be mocked by CNN, by your principal, by your buddy, your friend, but by a holy God that we offend, that we spit on. When he tells us, go left and we go right, thinking, I know God says that, but I'm going to do what I want to do anyway. That is the, the, the height of foolishness. And we all do it. <laughs> In one way or another, at some point, we, we do that. We act, like, we act like God isn't actually watching. As long as nobody human is watching, whose opinion I care about, I'm going to do it in secret. There is no secret. <laughs> we deride Him with our actions. And we mock God's sovereignty, omnipotence, His all-knowingness, and His everywhere presence with our behavior. And so what is the eternal consequence of that? What is the wage of that sin? Yes, it's death. It's separation from God. But according to these passages we're reading, it's, it's God snuffing out wickedness with his mockery. And the only way to come out from under that, even though we deserve it, is for Jesus to take it. And he took it big time, didn't he? He took it big time with the cloak and the thorns and the laughter on the cross can hardly breathe and getting made fun of. Sticks and stones hurt, but words count, even for Jesus. But he took it. So what's the light at the end of the tunnel? You might feel like, wow, I feel thoroughly depressed. Thanks, I'm not coming to the Advent celebration now. Come to the Advent celebration because the light at the end of the tunnel is those promises, we don't even have to get to Mark to get there, do we? God promised in uh, the Proverbs, Proverbs 20, uh, 123, if you turn, I'll pour my spirit to you. Proverbs 334, would you humble yourself? Humble yourself and recognize, wait, <laughs> God is in charge and I have messed up. I, I need to accept that rebuke. Great. God gives favor to you. You're favored. 
coming here and listening to a message that exposes our real weaknesses, exposes our real problems, and takes us down that dark tunnel, that's favor. Because people reject the whole tunnel. <laughs> I don't want to go down that path at all. If you were taken down there into the depths and you go, oh, yuck. He's punched. I should have been punched. He spit on. I should have spit. I'm the one that spits on him. I'm yucky. Yeah. We're all pretty far apart from Christ. What does Mark want you to come away with? He wants you to see in that exchange with Barabbas that we get the opportunity to have that exchange. It doesn't make sense and it's not fair. But we come out, we come out of it free. Free from the mockery and free from the eternal punishment because Christ takes the covering. He covers you completely, totally. So ironically, what I want you to leave here with is not a sense of shame, but the very opposite. If you sense a, a, a heavy uh, weight of shame because of something you've done, uh, something you did, who you used to be before you came to Christ, and you feel that, that weight of shame coming on you, you're not supposed to feel that if you're in Christ. Well, how do I really build up the faith muscles that it takes to understand that I shouldn't be feeling that shame? Read Mark 15 and understand that Jesus took it. What would you deserve? However bad it is that you did, what would you deserve if you did that? Read Mark 15. Did Jesus take it? He did. He took it physically. He took it emotionally. He took it every which way possible. He took it. So don't leave here ashamed. Unless you reject Christ, then that's an appropriate feeling that should lead you to Christ. That's the weight of the Spirit's reproof on your life, rebuking you, saying, hey, this is wrong. This is messed up. I, I don't know how to fix it. You can't. I fix it. Come to me, and I'll pour my Spirit to you, and I'll teach you how to follow Christ. Let's pray.